Welcome to another episode of the Sermapod, the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I am your guest host, Matt Liller, and I am very happy to welcome to the Sermapod today, attorney Jennifer Steinmetz from Tucker Ellis LLP, based out of their Cleveland, Ohio office. Jennifer has been defending products liability claims for over two decades, and Jennifer, we're very happy to welcome you to the Sermapod here today. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. Jennifer, today we're going to be uh, talking about uh, potential exposure as it comes to artificial turf. And so before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about the history of artificial turf and some of the advantages that it offers? Sure. Uh, So artificial turf has long been used as a replacement for other surfaces, in particular natural grass. And we're talking about really any sport played on any field. So football, soccer, lacrosse, um, whether that's at the high school level, the college level, or the professional level. Uh, Some, you know, local community rec centers even use turf, you know, for recreational activities, uh, kids' playgrounds, things like that. Uh, Essentially, it's been around for decades. So when we talk about artificial turf in its entirety, there's a couple different component parts. Uh, First are the uh, the little blades of grass, which are made of plastic, um, a, a backing material that those blades are attached to, and then the essentially the adhesive used to secure the blades to the backing. Now, um, what many people know, and I know a lot of parents have their kids come home with the, the black stuff all over their clothes after sporting events. It's it's um, that's from the rubber infill they call it, and it's essentially ground rubber that they put in between the blades of grass gra- grass to kind of stabilize it. Uh, so those are kind of the the different parts of turf as a whole. Now, turf has advantages. Um, it does not require the upkeep of natural grass. It's resistant to weather. And while it may have uh, an initial upfront price tag that's higher than natural grass, overall, the maintenance maintenance costs are much lower. Um, So I guess over the years, we've seen turf become more and more popular, and particularly in those areas where uh, grass is harder to grow and maintain. So over the past couple of years, there's been a bit of a controversy uh, in the sports world about artificial turf versus real grass. And so can you tell us a little bit about the history of that controversy and specifically how you got involved in it? Sure. Uh, The controversy essentially um, revolves around non-contact lower extremity injuries. Now, there are some other injuries which we can talk about later that have been kind of anecdotally linked to turf, but um, you know, artificial turf does not have that same divot. It does not, sorry, does not create that same divot as natural grass. So it's, it's, there's sort of a difference in the release of the cleat. And um, this essentially generates greater force and torque on the foot and the lower extremity, which can lead to the potential for injuries. Uh, Now I first uh, heard about this or started to, you know, become aware of this um, in the context of the Odell Beckham Jr., uh, non-contact knee injury in Super Bowl 22. Uh, Odell, blame, Odell blamed the turf. Um, and, you know, injuries by a handful of NFL players over the last couple years have kind of really stirred the pot on that issue. Um, OBJ himself is quite vocal about, you know, the turf being the cause of his particular injury. Um, he supports those around the, him. And then also 
the Players Association, the NFL Players Association, really led by the um, the vocal prowess of uh, J.C. Treader, uh, the president, um, has really come out and called several times for a complete replacement of turf fields, you know, in favor of natural grass. Um, most recently in September, when Aaron Rodgers had the Achilles injury, that was that first game of the season, and it, it ended his 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 season essentially. Um, the players' union sort of reignited that demand that the NFL uh, replace its fields um, in favor of natural grass. Now, there are currently 15 of the 30 stadiums. There are 32 teams, of course. 30 stadiums being used, and 15 of them, half of them, use natural. Uh, or sorry, use artificial turf. So, uh, I think that the NFL players kind of have their work cut out for them. Um, so, how did I get interested? I mean, as a defense lawyer, I started to wonder about the potential exposure, you know, for turf manufacturers or those who make the component parts or even those who purchase the turf, um, you know, what that exposure might be should this ever, uh, is the debate ever enter a courtroom. And, and piggybacking off of that, you know, has, has this issue gotten to the courtroom yet? Has there been any history of actual litigation on the safety of artificial turf versus natural grass? Uh, I am not personally aware of any uh, personal injury out uh, personal injury case out there uh, blaming turf or alleging that turf caused the injuries. Um, over the last couple of months, I've kind of been speaking a little bit and talking to others about this, and I was anecdotally told there was a case. I think it was filed in 2019 um, in Baltimore, a state court case involving some allegations of uh, surrounding the safety of turf. At the time of this podcast, I have requested those docket materials and st still have not seen them. But um, I guess the bottom line is I'm not, you know, here to talk to you about a mature litigation or, you know, uh, a mass of cases and, you know, tell your viewers, you know, how they should defend them or anything like that. I, 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 I'm really at this point, it's just speculation and it's something that I've been watching and I can only really, you know, speculate on how things might go. Uh, Really quickly, though, I will say that there is one, um, notably, there is a class action in New Jersey against a turf manufacturer, not for personal injury, but essentially related to its advertising and marketing materials, basically saying that, you know, the durability um, of the turf as it was expressed in those materials, you know, didn't measure up. And there are accounts for um, fraud, breach of warranty, violation of consumer protection, etc. But with respect to personal injury suits, uh, nothing, nothing significant quite yet. You mentioned um, non-contact lower extremity injuries are some of the injuries, at least thus far, that are claimed to be associated with artificial turf. Are there any other types of injuries? You know, for instance, you know, if you get tackled on artificial turf, is it you know alleged to be uh, more you know harder or, or more injury prone or anything else like that? Uh, Yes, Matt. Um, the with respect to the non-contact lower extremity injuries, uh, really quick because I think that will be the focus of kind of any litigation that we might see, and other injuries might be at play. Um, there are some studies out there now. They are uh, exclusive to the NFL. There were two sort of longer-term, what I'll call longer-term studies. So, uh, you know, five or more between five and ten years each, and they did find a statistically significant. Um, increase in injuries played on synthetic turf surfaces as compared to natural grass. Um, but I, I will say, you know, those are 
very limited, those studies. I mean, they're limited to what I'll call the bubble of the NFL, um, where, you know, the NFL has a, you know, more resource, more resources to devote to, you know, the upkeep of its fields. You know, they replace the infield probably more often than your, you know, local high school in anywhere town USA. And, and so, you know, the footwear is of a different caliber with these professional athletes. Um, You know, the the, the athletes themselves are, are larger in size and force, uh, you know, often. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, I feel like, you know, these studies, while they do show that and they have, you know, terrific shock value for sort of, you know, why natural grass is favored over artificial turf. um, We have to look at those kind of under a microscope because they are just limited to the to really NFL and um, might not be applicable elsewhere. So I wanted to say that about the sort of non-contact lower extremity side of things. Um, And that's, you know, the, the foot, the ankle, the knee, things that we're seeing in the NFL. Um, but with respect to other injuries, um, the National uh, Center for Health Research actually published a paper earlier this year looking at, you know, what other injuries, you know, might be at play here and and did list several. Um, the first, as you mentioned, is kind of the hardness of, of the playing surface itself with turf. Um, in particular, uh, concussions may be disproportionately higher with artificial turf than with natural surfaces. And um, the injury to the head itself may even be more severe. Um, Artificial turf surfaces get hotter um, in the sun than natural grass. You know, they can often get up to 150 degrees or higher, which can lead to, um, you know, heat stroke, thermal burns, dehydration, et cetera, for the, for the players. Um, Another concern that the NCHR raised was, uh, you know, the chemicals that comprise that rubbery infill that I I talked about earlier, you know, that can break down into a particulate matter, you know, as it gets ground and ground by the the shoes or the cleats, and that can sort of get into the lungs and cause uh, lung-related problems. Um, The NCHR even talked about a a recent study that uh, uh, speculated that the plastic grass, those blades, the plastic itself may have uh, those forever chemicals, PFAS um, in them and can also lead to a potential toxicity. Um, so there also was uh, notably uh, a an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer um, from March of this year. And um, it was only anecdotal, but I think it was worth noting. This article kind of followed um a whole team of players. I think it was from the seasons that they played on artificial turf, the Philadelphia Phillies um, from early seventies to the early two thousands for about three decades. And there was an incidence among that team of a rare form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. And so, you know, I, I, I did some searching around and there are some plaintiff firms um, advertising for, you know, artificial turf, you know, cancer suits. Um, I don't know, you know, if they've gotten any business yet. I, I haven't heard of any filed, but, you know, I don't know if that might be another spark, but we are talking about, you know, potential serious injuries, even cancer. Mm. Now, while we're talking about, you know, potential risk and potential exposure for artificial turf injuries and conditions, who do you see as the uh, potential target defendants uh, for cases on that, that line? 
Um, so, you know, what, what comes to mind, especially in my, my world is defending products liability cases are the turf manufacturers and the component parts um, of that turf, those who make the component parts. Um, so I think that those, you know, might be might be two targets, but certainly also those who purchased the turf. Um, so the schools, you know, the universities, the um, the NFL itself, um, you know, those who 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 purchased the turf and the that the players play on. And, you know, thinking, putting our creative plaintiff's attorney's hats on, uh, <laughs> what types of allegations do you think you, you talked about uh, one a little bit earlier, but what are some of the creative types of allegations you think that we might see from plaintiff's attorneys who might pick up one of these cases? I love to think like a plaintiff's attorney for the day. Um, so, you, you know, I don't know that they're all too creative. I think from the perspective of a uh, plaintiff's attorney filing a lawsuit in this context against a manufacturer of turf or a component part manufacturer of turf, um, I would expect to see kind of something to follow a traditional products liability model with claims of, you know, design defect and or failure to warn. Um you know, with respect to design, the players may say that certain elements of the, uh, you know, the injured player athlete plaintiff would say that, you know, certain elements of the design didn't really, you know, protect him or her from from injury, that it could have been designed in a better way. And certainly, you know, in some jurisdictions, a safer alternative design like natural grass might carry some weight. Um, failure to warn claims are also likely particularly given that, you know, some of these artificial uh, turf manufacturers, you know, do tout, you know, safety and even sometimes safety over natural grass as part of their, you know, selling um, of the product and marketing of their materials. Um, so I think with respect to manufacturers and component part manufacturers, you know, that's the model I would expect. Um with respect to the turf purchasers, like the schools or the teams, if, if you know, they, they happen to be on the other side of the V from, from these injured plaintiffs, I would expect those claims to sound really a negligence um, or premises liability if those schools or teams, you know, owned the field on which the injury uh, occurred. And, you know, um, for schools, it's, it's for public schools, you know, there is sovereign immunity in, in many cases, um, but... I think, as we all know, there are exceptions to every rule and there are carve outs to that sovereign immunity. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that schools are entirely off of the off the hook, even if they are public. Now, switching hats and putting your products liability defense hat back on, uh, do you see any particular you know, challenges for the plaintiff's bar or, or perhaps another way to look at it is, you know, defenses that the uh, potential defendants could lock onto if faced with one of these lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge and the overall defense is going to be, you know, where's the research? Um, we don't, like I mentioned earlier, there's we have the NFL research that is, you know, out there, and you know, it is over a course of many years, and it did find, you know, statistical significance, but there are limitations. There, are, there really isn't anything else. You know, it's it's hard to do a a, a study with the endpoint of safety, right? It's like can't do that. So. So it's got to be kind of these cohort follow-up studies, and there really isn't anything outside of the NFL that I've seen. Um, so I think the challenge, number one, is going to be the, the lack of you know current scientific evidence and data. Um, I think additional tests and research need to be done uh, 
to form the basis of any credible lawsuit. And, you know, sort of uh, piggybacking onto that, I think the, the second challenge is, you know, going to be to find for the plaintiffs to be able to find an expert to support, you know, these ideas, um, especially given the limited science. So, um, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be a small feat, but I think as many of us know, sometimes the, you know, seeds of science are often grown, you know, watered and grown in the courtroom. And, um, and I wouldn't, you know, put it, put it past a clever plaintiff's attorney to find a way to, you know, get their expert to, to support these ideas, these notions, and, you know, perhaps do some testing and, you know, get something on file. Um, you know, this could all, of course, turn out to be nothing. We could, you know, be sitting here on this podcast speculating and, uh, no plaintiff's attorney really ever, you know, latches on. But, you know, then I wonder if a suit over turf safety, you know, particularly one filed against, you know, the, the NFL or the NCAA, you know, whether that could have a ripple effect and we could see a mass litigation, you know, like we saw with concussions, you know, in 2019, the NCAA paid $75 million to settle the concussion litigation, you know, including, you know, continued screenings for the injured players and, you know, medical research. And then the NFL a couple of years later, I think it was 2021, you know, that settlement was 765, I think, million dollars on behalf of 18,000 retired players. So, I mean, th- you know, that litigation did have that ripple effect. Um, you know, this isn't limited, though, to, to just the NFL or the NCAA. As I mentioned earlier, this is, you know, I, I think has a potential exposure for, you know, any, any you know, turf manufacturer who, you know, sold turf to, again, anywhere USA. So high schools, you know, rec centers, small towns. And, um, you know, it only takes one plaintiff's attorney to dive in and start advertising and, I think things could quickly start to grow. So in the absence of litigation and an established body of case law that we can all perhaps use as a guide, um, what do you think that turf manufacturers and purchasers can do right now to reduce or minimize uh, the potential exposure for claims? Well, um, hopefully they're already keeping a watchful eye on the debate. I mean, you can't go, you know, a day or a week without seeing this kind of in the media, especially with respect to the recent attention with the NFL and its football season. Um, so, you know, I, I hope that they're keeping a watchful eye um, out, but, but, you know, I think that they need to be mindful of the design of their products that they're, you know, setting, put, put, putting forth the best design possible and that they document, you know, what they've done and what they've considered. Uh, same with the warnings, um, you know, be careful about what they're saying in their warnings. Um, and certainly, you know, I think manufacturers could also consider you know, indemnification or some sort of hold harmless language in their contracts, you know, with purchasers. Now, with the, the purchasers of the turf, you know, what could they be doing? I think, you know, schools, rec centers, um, you know, need to need to be mindful of what they're using, what their surfaces are. Now, it, you know, the argument is going to be cost benefit analysis, right? So some of these schools are so small that to go in and, you know, rip up their artificial turf and replace it with natural gas that they've now, grass that they've now got to, you know, upkeep. It's, it's not 
feasible. It's not reasonable, especially given the lack of science. So I think, I think right now, at least until, you know, we sort of see anything, you know, further play out, I think, you know, document, 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 but, you know, make sure that, you know, if you're a school and you're considering adjustments, um, that you document, you know, things that you've considered, you know, reasons why you didn't take that route, you know, what the cost would be, et cetera. And, you know, that might, you know, protect, against some potential exposure down the road. I think just an ongoing, you know, documented, thoughtful analysis of things that have been considered um, is, is, is the most prudent way to go. Um, also adopting rules about footwear or, you know, being mindful of that, you know, using cleats instead of, you know, the rubber bottoms, the, you know, footwear mindfulness can also sort of mitigate injuries. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, player safety should always be the top concern. And so I think they just need to document what they're doing and make sure that they're mindful of player safety. Jennifer Steinmetz with Tucker Ellis LLP. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the Sermapod here today. And please come back and join us again. <laughs> should any of these issues hit the courtroom or, or be more in the spotlight? Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.